This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense. This is Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Laurent Rusekas. How are you, Laurent? Great, Hill. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, gladly. So, so uh, Energy Sense, as we know, is is an IHS market podcast to uh, to discuss the the things that lie on the intersection of energy and finance. And, and Lauren is executive director of uh, focused on European gas within IHS's Climate and Sustainability Group. And so we're going to talk about European gas and what's going on with Nord Stream two. But before we get into that, Lauren is also a, a big fan of the NBA and hails from Michigan. So, so does that mean that you are a Detroit Pistons fan? I, 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 hope, I, guess. I guess I still remain a Detroit Pistons fan. I mean, it's I don't I live abroad. I live in London and the Pistons are not good. They're um, not. So, but you can still hearken back to the old victorious days. I was there when they won their two titles uh, in the late 80s. They were playing temporarily in the Pontiac Silverdome. So anyone could go. So I saw all those games at home in the upper deck of a football stadium. You couldn't see anything, but it was a lot of, <laughs> lot of fun. And the tickets were $10 or something. Yeah. So does that give you an I, I I'm not necessarily a, a Pistons fan. I, I don't dislike the Pistons. I really liked that, that team years ago with Rip Hamilton. And uh, I think Chauncey Billups was on the team. But, but I, I have an appreciation for the bad boys of, I guess, the late 80s. Yeah. And Isaiah. Jordan Isaiah, Martin, yeah, yeah. Lambeer. Lambeer, yes. Dirty player, I will have to admit, but successful. But that's, I, I feel like sports needs a heel, right? If you look at the WWF, right, and you've got Rowdy Roddy Piper and, and Hulk Hogan, and, and they were that great heel, and I'm not sure that the NBA or really anyone has a heel right now. With That's true. They're all friends. They're all, they all get along. They're all friends. Um, Bill Lambeer also while he was in the NBA, not maybe for his whole career, but in the beginning, was the only player in the NBA with a salary lower than that of his father, who was the CEO. Because his father worked at Ford, right? His father was, I think he was from Cleveland. His father was the CEO of some big, you know, big industrial type company. If I, if I'm That's not right. Uh, yeah, I, I had forgotten it. I think it was one of the, was it one of the auto? That, um, I, don't, when, I don't know. Could be. Okay. So, so do you... Are you apologetic of Isaiah and everyone walking off the Bulls court in 91? I don't mind it. It was it was okay. their style. It was their style. So I forgive them. I see why people criticize it, but I, I personally would not. Well, and the Celtics did it to them, I think, in 88. That's uh, right. That's that's the Pistons repost to that allegation. You're up on uh, your you're up on your squabbles of the late 80s NBA. I am, and, and and maybe as a segue, uh, the, the the lack of diplomacy for, from Isaiah and, and Lambeer uh, is is perhaps the, maybe the opposite, or perhaps some of what's related to Nord Stream and, and the art of diplomacy, um, as we're talking about European gas. 
so, so, so maybe if you could just pr provide a little bit of an update. Nord Stream 2 is one of the, the more, uh, I, I guess, popular kind of headlines in terms of the global natural gas right now, or at least as it relates to Europe. It, it's hard for me and I would imagine many to kind of get a feel exactly what's going on, that there's a lot of sanctions from the U.S. Can you give us a bit of a status of, of what's going on with Nord Stream 2 right now and where we are? Sure. I mean, the, I'd say the main thing about it is that it has a very, very high profile because it's become much more than a pipeline. This pipeline has become a symbol of uh, of Russia and how the U.S. responds to Russia, how Europe responds to Russia. So it's gotten freighted with all of this meaning and significance that from a pure gas industry perspective, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. But this is a project that was initiated by Gazprom with five European companies uh, as its uh, partners in the mid-2010s along the route of an existing pipeline called Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 1 is actually two parallel pipelines. Nord Stream 2 will be two more parallel pipelines. So this would take gas from Russia across the Baltic Sea straight to Germany and allow less reliance on what is still currently the main transit route for Russian gas, which is Ukraine. The project got a lot of criticism, particularly from the U.S., that eventually, by late 2019, turned into action with the imposition of sanctions, uh, not on Gazprom, not on Nord Stream 2, the project, but on European or whatever types of firms, Russian firms, that were subcontractors supporting the laying of the offshore pipe. So this stopped the project about probably a month, month and a half away from the completion of Pipelay in its tracks. And since then, there's been sort of a cat and mouse game as the project is now proceeding again, despite the sanctions, presumably with entities that are not susceptible to sanctions. And uh, But meanwhile, the, the criticism and the, the political opposition to it has ramped up quite a bit. And so this would lessen the reliance on Gazprom gas into Europe through Ukraine, but but it's not going to at all lessen the reliance on Russian imports into Europe, correct? That's that's correct. I mean, it's a different it's a different route, but it you know I, I think in the analysis we see Russians' share in the European gas market being driven by supply and demand and price, and also by Gazprom's strategy whether it wants to dump a lot of gas into the market and drive prices down, but increase its market share, or whether it wants to hold gas back, allow prices to come up and, and take a, a lower market share. And it really doesn't matter from that perspective whether Nord Stream 2 is built or not, because there is this existing route through Ukraine, which has been actually quite uh, quite reliable. So a lot of the criticism says this is going to make Europe more dependent on Russian gas, and it's just very hard to see how that is uh, could be the case. I guess a couple questions. Why did it take, uh, one, why does the U.S. care? And why all of a sudden after it's almost, I mean, it's only what, a couple hundred meters from being completed. What, why, why get involved so late in the game uh, after the pipe is nearly done? Okay, it's more, it's, it's still at this point, you know, probably 70, 80 kilometers or so. Uh, okay. but, but, but the point is, well, the U.S. interest is based primarily on the perception, which has something to it, that this is a, a pipeline to bypass Ukraine. Now, who cares in some sense? You know, why why, do, why is it in the U.S. interest whether a pipeline goes one direction or not? Well, it's because of what's the, the recent history between Russia and Ukraine, where in 2014, Russia uh, occupied and essentially seized Crimea, which was a part mm -hmm. of Ukraine, is now 
from Russia's point of view, a part of Russia, and then also sort of supported and fomented rebellion in eastern Ukraine that I think pretty clearly was driven driven by Russia. And so in that context, there's a tremendous desire to support Ukraine in the face of this you know, Russian uh, uh, aggression. And there have been sanctions going back to 2014 during the Obama presidency through executive order, then a lot of them codified into law during the Trump presidency by Congress to to sanction Ukraine, uh, I'm sorry, rather to sanction Russia to try to punish it and, and give it sent an incentive to, to roll back what it's done in, in Ukraine. Um, and so this is just coming on top of all the other things that have been done, which have had, frankly, some significant impact, but have not changed Russian behavior at all. Why so late? That's a good question. I think I think a lot of this has to do with the congressional process. It's not that easy to get a bill to the floor. There's not really opposition in Congress to this. People aren't familiar with the details. They aren't familiar with some of the diplomatic downsides of doing this, you know, kind of to Europe and to Germany in, in one sense. And I can get to that later. Um, but it's against Russia. Russia you know, is not popular in Washington right now, not just because of Ukraine, but because of the aftermath of of election interference in the in the 2016 election. So, but it's hard to get a bill. It's hard to get time on the floor, and so bills had been introduced and had never made it to to a vote. So what happened? And this turns out this is how you can get a lot of legislation through that's not making it to the floor. It got stuck into in late 2019 to the National Defense Authorization Act. This is a big omnibus bill, thousands of pages long, that kind of must pass every must year pass. because it sets the, it's not actually a finance authorization bill, but it essentially sets the agenda for the next year. Uh, and it's considered to be a must pass bill. So after the NDAA in 2019 had been passed through the House and through the Senate, when they had the conference committee to bring the, the, the language together, this sanctions against pipeline barges, specifically one company that was owned and operated the barges that were laying the pipe. That was dropped into the NDAA, passed mm -hmm. into law, and that was that. So that company, Alsees, stopped. So it was essentially, it was only in the last moment, the opponents and certain strong opponents led, I think, by Senator Cruz of Texas, thought of this or, or, or achieved this sort of end run around the normal process by sticking it in the, uh, the NDAA. Then those sanctions were tightened in the NDA that was signed into law on January 1st of this year, that sort of the 2021 uh, NDA, by uh, expanding the sanctions to cover not just the pipeline barge operator, but any other companies providing anyway. services in support of pipeline, basically. And is it all geopolitics? I, I mean, a, a, as a comparison in, in the U.S., that there is all, all the attention on the kind of the oil sands pipeline, you know, coming from Canada. To, to the U.S., where again, it's just that the last few, you know, feet or meters, or you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but but it's another kind of last-minute stoppage, where it seems to be driven a lot by environmental concerns. That, that if you can stop the pipes, you can stop the production of what's going into the pipes. Yeah, is this all geopolitics, or is there environmental concerns around this kind of European pipeline well, pushback? It's a good point. I mean, there it it is basically geopolitics, and from from the U.S. intervention on this is certainly about the politics explicitly. In Europe, there is environmental opposition, as you can imagine. From a European perspective, just given the trend of decarbonization and the increasing role of renewables and sort of an outlook for, for gas demand in Europe that is, you know, sort of flat and then generally declining over time, 
this is probably going to be the last big new gas pipeline to Europe, along with Baltic pipe, which goes from Norway to Poland, which is being built. Europe just doesn't need big new pipelines. In terms of there are some environmental groups in Germany which have started, there have been a few lawsuits that, uh, to stop the project, which have not succeeded so far. And the Green Party in Germany ha has come out in opposition to it, for primarily for environmental reasons as well. But as of now, there's nothing in German policy, really, that's going to, to change the, the situation at this point. It's really the U.S. sanctions that uh, you know, threaten to stop the project. So what are the strategic intentions of other, if, if the U.S. is concerned maybe for, uh, I guess, balance of power, Russia type relations, what, what's driving the, the different behavior of the European participants? I understand that Germany has one view and non-German Europe has potentially another view. Can you, yeah. can you describe about what's going on with this? Yes. Um, first of all, one thing about this debate that's interesting is a lot of it is characterized in terms of the European gas market, the impact of the European gas market uh, that this pipeline would have. And as I've already said, this doesn't actually increase the EU's dependence on, on Russian gas, doesn't really doesn't really affect that. But you'll still hear a lot of argument that the sanctions bill in the US is called the Protecting Europe's Energy Security Act. <laughs> so, uh, which uh, not sure that it does. Um, uh, so you'll hear some of those same arguments from the countries that are very strongly opposed to it in, in Europe, led by Poland, and then the three Baltic states. Um, now, those countries really aren't, they'll make some some arguments. I mean, the Baltic states aren't affected at all by this. They have access to LNG, thanks to Lithuania building a, a regas terminal a few years ago, and uh, they get their, their Russian gas directly from, from Russia. Um, Poland could be, its gas market wouldn't really be affected, but it does have another pipeline transiting Poland that does not provide the same level of revenue with the same level of importance as Ukraine's transit revenue, but it's something, and uh, that pipeline could be used less if Nord Stream 2 is finished. But really for them, it's about politics. I mean, the Polish government is strongly supportive of Ukraine. The Baltic governments are strongly supportive of Ukraine. And a lot of other governments in Europe are strongly supportive of Ukraine and and opposed to much of what Russia has done. And so I think each different European country, you know, and in fact, different European parties or even politicians, you know, weigh these things differently. Germany uh, has tended to want to continue to do business with Russia and frankly didn't see this as a political project when it got started. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a misconception, I think, in among a lot of people in, in the U.S. And, and everywhere that that you need some political decision from Angela Merkel or something like that for a pipeline like this to get built. Well, no, I mean, there's a, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you have a pipeline project, you apply to the relevant administrative parts of the bureaucracy for all the permits you need. And once you have the permits, you start building. There's no mechanism to politically, you know, support or block a project. So I would characterize what Germany has done really is less politically supporting the project, although there's some of that, but politically opposing the U.S. trying to dictate its policy right. at the last second uh, with the use of, uh, of sanctions that the U.S. can only impose because of the U.S. dollar. This is These are extraterritorial sanctions which threaten a German company or a Russian company or any company supporting pipeline with not having access to U.S. dollar clearing. So they, you can't do any transaction in U.S. dollars with anyone, even if it has nothing to do with the U.S., because that still has to go through the U.S. financial system. Um, so... So in Europe, there's a long-standing, going back to the 90s, principle that this is unacceptable, this is illegal 
under EU law. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the, the the principal basis of the opposition to the to the sanctions. Principle in the sense that just Germany doesn't want somebody else messing with its decisions. The, yeah, the EU does not accept the principle of any country imposing extraterritorial sanctions on EU companies or states or or anything. And that's actually enshrined. This all started with actually the uh, the Iran Libya Sanctions Act from 1996, okay. which which imposed which stopped said european companies cannot do any business with iran and then there was a huge pushback and hue and cry from europe led by tony blair the eu passed a law which is still on the books called the blocking statute which says it's illegal to comply with these sanctions um, in practice they will waive that for european companies that simply must not fall afoul of u.s sanctions but it's a matter of law that that's not acceptable from the eu point of view so that's now What's weird about this case is that the Polish government, on some level, there's someone in Poland who, as part of their EU membership, understands that EU sovereignty is important. But in this case, the Polish and the Baltic states and a few others, they're they're so much more focused on this issue than that broader principle, which is a bit abstract, that they're in support of the, the sanctions and the U.S. stopping it with sanctions, because that seems to be the only way to stop it at this point. From the U.S. perspective, from the from anyone's perspective, I mean, if you're in Poland appealing to Germany to not support the project, that ship has has left the the port because the project's ninety five percent. Right. So, I mean, if Germany, there's a lot of people also urging Germany to, you know, have a moratorium or you know at least while we think about this or something like that. But there's there's really no legal or it's not clear what the legal basis for that would be. And this is where you get into points of law. But there's a pipeline that started up a few months ago that brings Azerbaijani gas to Italy mm-hmm. called the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline. And as that and that was a long, hard road, getting that pipeline built and getting all the permitting done in Italy. It wasn't politically controversial at all. Uh, that seemed to diversify European gas supply and sort of had political support. But, you know, green parties in general don't want, as I said, new new gas pipelines. Right. And when this sort of strange coalition in Italy came to power a few years ago, including the the Five Star Party, which is kind of a party from out of left field, neither left nor right, uh, and and they came into the coalition, and their guy, their party, their position was against this pipeline, and and their person as part of the coalition became energy minister, and he first thing he said was, "We're canceling this pipeline," and. After a few weeks went by, a lot of conversations were had with lawyers, and then the prime minister came out and said, we're not canceling the pipeline. We've looked into this, and we know that was in the platform of our of, of our coalition partner. But if we do, we'll be liable for enormous damages because there's no justification for it in terms of the, the existing law at the time that the, the pipeline was built. So they backed off from that i think fortunately for for everyone so there's a real question as to whether germany can do do anything the thing about the us is nobody can really sue the us for stopping <laughs> the project they can try but that's never that's never worked in the past so it sounds like the eu is kind of caught in a matter of principle ukraine clearly well i would assume is against the the pipeline because they want the the, the revenue from the, the the tolling or whatever from russia gas going through ukraine russia clearly wants two avenues into at least two avenues into europe is that the the, the basic kind of kind of framework i mean do, do does europe or, or the eu do they care about it from a security of supply perspective, given the, the regas and the other, you know, access to natural gas? 
I think the general, yeah, the general view of, of, of the European gas industry and sort of uh, analysts like myself who cover the European gas industry as opposed to covering politics or something like that is that certainly in the past, the EU has been vulnerable to overdependence on Russian gas. Not the EU necessarily as a whole, but certainly the central, central and eastern parts uh, of the EU have, have had some dependence. But what's happened in Europe is that over the last 10, 15 years, you've seen tremendous progress in reducing the significance of this share of Russian gas in the market. That's because of LNG, because of building a lot of regas. I mentioned Lithuania. Poland has already has also built a regas uh, plant and is building a pipeline direct from, from Norway. There's a lot more interconnections um, reverse flow, so the, the the network of pipelines, transmission pipelines that links Europe, there, there's more and more connections across borders. There's the ability for gas to flow in both directions. And there's also rules that mandate liberalized third-party access to pipelines, fair and, and published tariffs and, and, and all of that stuff. So, And then to top it all off, the antitrust authority in Europe, which is called uh, Directorate General for Competition, started a investigation into Gazprom's historic behavior in 2016 and found preliminarily that Gazprom had misused its dominant role in certain national markets within the EU to unfairly price its gas. And this led to these these things can lead to massive fines sometimes. Google is, it's happened mm -hmm. to Google, it's happened to Facebook, or it's, it's happened to Microsoft in Europe. Um, what this led to was the other alternative, which was a negotiated agreement between Gazprom and the competition uh, directorate, where Gazprom, and by the way, in the meantime, over the few years this is going on, Gazprom stopped all of that stuff because they were being watched and prosecuted for it or on the verge of being prosecuted for it. So Gazprom now, I won't get into the details, but they agreed to a document and they will be subject to enormous fines if they violate it, so I think they won't, um, that sort of compels them to where it does have a dominant position, mm -hmm. which is not very frequent anymore, it cannot act as if that, it cannot take advantage of that dominant position. So we've seen in Bulgaria and in Poland, as a result of that settlement, those companies that are counterparties with Gazprom went to Gazprom and renegotiated their prices along the lines of what had been dictated by this agreement with the EU and got a big price reduction. So there's no risk from a gas market point of view. That doesn't stop people from saying that there is, sure. but there isn't. Now, Ukraine is a different matter. I mean, for Ukraine, certainly there's the issue of lost transit revenue. There's no longer an issue of dependence on Russian gas, per se. Ukraine uh, in 2015 stopped buying gas directly from Gazprom and buys all of its gas that it imports. It, it produces about two-thirds of the gas it needs and imports a third. Those imports are coming from Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, by so-called reverse flow. Those are Russian molecules, but they're being purchased on the market from traders, not in a, a transaction with, with Gazprom. But you know, Ukraine will lose transit revenue to the extent that Nord Stream 2 takes away the flow of gas through Ukraine, which it certainly would to, to a certain extent. Am I right that Ukraine has a, a lot of storage uh, available to, to Europe and, and does, in a sense, could Ukraine be net-net even if uh, the, the storage opportunity with a more mature uh, LNG trade can help to balance any lost revenue from Nord Stream 2? Well, I'm, it's, that's less about the revenue, I, I would say. What Ukraine did at the beginning of 2020 in the context of signing the expiry of an old 
agreement on transit with, with Russia, with Gazprom, signing a new one. That allowed them to do what they sort of were supposed to do under EU rules as a member of the, the energy community, which is kind of a, a waiting area for energy only for countries in southeastern Europe. They unbundled their transmission company. So they took the transmission company, pulled it out of the big state oil and gas company, Nafta Gas, made it separate. And this new company has been very aggressive and very creative in terms of doing commercially clever things to make money, not in the scale of the Russian transit revenue, but to make money by providing storage services to Europe. So and then reducing, I mean, normally in a country like Ukraine, if you were going to come from the EU into a non-EU state to store the gas and then take it out again and bring it back in terms of customs duties and all of that mess and, you know, all the customs documentation you would have to go through, plus all the tariffs, entry and exit, and then into storage and out of storage, you would never do it. In the past, nobody ever did this. So what they did is they streamlined all this. They, they, they said, if you're coming into storage and going out, it's a customs-free transaction. And we'll give you a very special tariff for entering the Ukrainian system and exiting again and for good storage tariff. And so that became a big source of additional storage in 2020. And in the summer of 2020, actually, the European gas market needed storage as never before because prices were, you know, LNG from all around the world was coming into Europe and there mm -hmm. was nowhere to put the gas, in fact. So it was it was huge for the European gas market and really integrated Ukraine much more firmly than it had been with the European gas market and definitely increased Europe's, uh, rather Ukraine's supply security. In terms of revenue, it, it, it won't make up for the lost revenue. Now, I should say that in this agreement I mentioned in 2019, Gazprom agreed to a five-year contract wherein for 2020 full year through the end of 2024, it, it guarantees to ship a minimum amount of gas or it has paid for capacity and must pay for capacity to ship a minimum quite substantial amount of gas through the Ukrainian system. So this revenue risk, if you look at it today, really comes up after 2024, not, not immediately. Okay. And regardless, Ukraine is strategically important to EU gas supply, whether Nord Stream 2 gets finished or not due to that storage component. Yeah, that's right. It's important. And then it's a market. I mean, it's it's really part of the European gas market now. So and 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 Europe, because of its membership in the energy community, you know, the EU institutionally, you know, it's not an EU member state, but from an energy gas point of view, it's kind of part of the part of the club by by taking on the rules and regulations that it would in energy that it would have to take on if it were actually an EU member, which is what the energy community is. Okay. And we so, so we've talked a little bit about Gazprom and the obvious importance uh, to, to, you know, it, it's, um, I suppose, strategy and visions. Are uh, other companies getting involved or, or uh, call it trade groups representing types of companies in, in terms of what Nord Stream 2 may or may not mean to them, you know, whether it be you know, just thinking out loud, some of the LNG regas uh, folks within Europe who, who might want to discourage any pipeline or, or even some of, say, the upstream producers in Gulf Coast U.S. Um, sure. who, who might be looking for an avenue for, for their natural gas. Sure. Um, you know, there is a perception in in Germany and in Europe to some extent that the sanctions gets nurtured. That's just because the U.S. wants to sell LNG into Europe. And I think during the Trump administration, you know, since clearly Donald Trump did like selling U.S. products and like using political levers to do that, 
you know, even though he didn't do the the, the sanctions, they were really done mm-hmm. by by Congress. But that fed into this this perception. And, and in fact, in previous discussions between the German government and the U.S. government, some some leaked documents that were published in Germany a couple months ago made clear that Germany, as part of the discussion between the U.S. and Germany, Germany was saying, well, look what we're doing to facilitate the construction of a regas terminal in, in Germany, which will open up a new opportunity for U.S. LNG shippers. So the Germans certainly thought that that was part of part of the game. Mm-hmm. Frankly, as I've described, I think this is really driven much more by strong desire to back Ukraine, Ukraine being very active in Congress and lobbying for this, and then the general negative feeling for all the reasons we know against uh, against Russia, particularly at the level of, of Congress. Okay. So I'm going to come back to, to a second to the Detroit Pistons. Uh, Rashid Wallace is one of my favorite players. Uh, and, and is you know famous for his quote "ball don't lie," which is basically you know actions speak louder than words. As we're looking at Nord Stream two, you know, what are the "ball don't lie" kind of indicators that we should be watching? Where where can we expect uh, action and or progress to to know that there's a catalyst for either for the pipeline completion or the pipeline, in a sense, mothballing? Yeah. Well, I th- well, first of all, the pipeline is being built. So um, so whatever has been done. With the sanctions, you know, the, there's different vessels in there. It's much more slow, but the pipeline is proceeding. And I'm not sure exactly what, besides very unexpected action from some quarter, would stop that. So at this point, I think probably we can expect that the pipeline will be completed. And then it becomes a question of whether it would be would start to operate. And there it gets quite complicated to be certified and and to operate, uh, a number of steps need to be taken to comply with the European Gas Directive that don't appear to be have, t- have taken yet. So you could have sort of a some breathing space, even without a formal German moratorium, some breathing space between the completion of the pipeline, maybe in a couple months, and then any gas actually flowing. And then you have, I think, this this bilateral discussion between the U.S. and Germany. You know, the Biden administration has been very clear, and Joe Biden was clear when he was vice president, that the, the, the line they say is that this pipeline is a bad idea from, from the Biden administration's perspective. But at the same time, everyone understands that, particularly in the context of trying to rebuild the relationship with Germany, which was damaged during the previous administration, uh, I think Germany has made clear that this this is not a small issue if you use these sanctions to impose, set aside Nord Stream 2, that imposing policy on us using the the dollar clearing uh, uh, is not acceptable. So they're trying to find a way around that. And I, I think one thing to watch for is, could there be some sort of, since really the key from the U.S. point of view, not from the rhetoric and the title of the sanctions bill in Congress, but from the point of view of, of the administration, um, the key is Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. So mm-hmm. can somehow Ukraine get something uh, get something out of this? Can Germany make some commitments to Ukraine? Uh, can Germany convince Russia to make some other commitments to Ukraine in relation to gas transit beyond 2024 or something, something like that? So I think that's where a lot of the game is. I've written a paper about this recently for our clients. And I think here, a lot of the focus is on the energy transition in Ukraine and really the power sector. And there's a sto- the story there is interesting. Ukraine in the last few years has had tremendous boom of solar and wind investment into Ukraine mm-hmm. from local capital, from foreign capital, and they've, from very low levels, built up 
you know, quite a significant uh, renewables. Why? Because they had a law with very high feed-in tariffs. And at a certain point, they sort of looked and thought the current government said these feed-in tariffs are, are not sustainable. So they've been in a process of trying to renegotiate those or, you know, they, they don't want to just impose and change the terms on all these players. So there's been this ongoing process where they've reached signed an MOU with some of the generators, but not others, et cetera, et cetera, to reduce these feed-in tariffs, which they call uh, unsustainable. So whatever, I don't, you know, I don't really have a position on what they should have done and, and this and that. But what's clear is that it's damaged dramatically. The in, so the investment has almost completely dried up, and that's not good because Ukraine is 50% of its generation comes from nuclear, and those are hmm. aging nuclear plants. So, uh, you know, I'm not a specialist on how long you can extend the life of these plants, but generally speaking, if you look at the, you know, the numbers, uh, a lot of this nuclear capacity should be retired in the second half of this decade, and you really need that renewables to ramp up because nobody wants Ukraine to be building new gas plants or heaven forbid, new coal plants right. just to meet its energy needs or to start importing a lot of electricity from somewhere. So so I think if somehow through cooperation between the U.S., this, they should be doing this anyway, not related to Nord Stream 2, but that can kind of be a spur and an extra incentive to get cooperation between the U.S., Germany, the EU to reboot to start up again this investment by i don't know by managing some of the risk or providing some sort of uh, you know financing or, or financial guarantees to to kickstart uh, reboot the uh, renewables business in ukraine and is that then maybe the the connection to the financial sector and all of this you know we're talking but before we started recording just about you know european gas markets and the, the idea of this podcast being to, to focus on the intersection of finance and energy is it less about nord stream 2 and more about uh, i guess the diplomacy around nord stream 2 and what opportunities might get created for others as the parties see compromise sure well that i mean that that i think is is, is the best case scenario if if an offer um, could be acceptable to everyone if some sort of arrangement could be acceptable to everyone where the U.S. doesn't sanction Nord Stream 2, which means the project will be built, but enough is done so that Ukraine comes out of it feeling positive. And here I think you can see different from a purely geopolitical point of view. I think the Ukrainian response is no, you know, we must stop this project from a gas transit revenue point of view. As I said, there's not an immediate issue, but after 2024, there, there, there could be. You're probably not going to make up for that, certainly in this in this time frame. But if you're the minister of energy of Ukraine, mm -hmm. the acting minister of energy right now, he sees the crisis and he's talked a lot about this. And he 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 knows that they need to 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 fix the problems quickly. And he's proposed a carbon tax and a lot of other things. And so, yes, I think you could the best case outcome would be mobilizing a lot of backing so that capital can flow into wind and solar in Ukraine. And I should mention they've got a lot of land for wind and solar. Sure. The, the, the resource isn't that much different from countries in Southeastern Europe, but there's more land. There's more free land available and the permitting and all that stuff appears to be to be easier. So if that could happen, not based on what many people would say now was an unsustainably high feed-in tariff. So fantastic feed-in tariff, great numbers, but you know, maybe in the back of your head, there's some there's some risk here. Is this too good to be true? From 
moving that to a sustainable feed-in tariff, and to the extent you perceive a high risk just because of the recent history of the investment climate renewables there, if that can be backed up by the EU or Germany or the US or some combination of government bank type backing, then that would be tremendous. And you would, I'm sure, restart that that solar and wind boom in Ukraine and then and then start to move into uh, into hydrogen, which is another thing Ukraine is uh, excited about. Okay, and a longer conversation for, for, for another day, <laughs> hydrogen. Uh, so, so, so maybe just to wrap it up, what in terms of timing, when should we expect this to be in a sense behind us? I mean, I, I know Germany has an election coming up, what, in, in September that, do, do we expect any action or, or in, in fact, non-action between now and September? Is this something that Angela Merkel, is this something she wants to, to kind of leave her thumbprint on? Well, I'm sure. Well, uh, I'm sure this is not at the top of her 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 list. But um, but yes, there are elections in September. There, you know, she will be out of office. There will be a new, could be a new coalition. It's not clear. Um, the Greens are doing very well in the polls right now, which could have some implications. But I think in terms of what's going to happen, you're going to have continuing dialogue between U.S. and Germany. There's a lot of talk now that the U.S. is going to appoint a special envoy just for mm-hmm. this issue, which I think is important. That the details in terms of energy market and energy regulation and the legal stuff are very, very complicated. And I think I sort of feel very bad for a sort of a for someone in the State Department who gets charged with this, who why on earth would they know all this stuff? They don't. You know, <laughs> their, their expertise lies elsewhere. Um, and, you know, so uh, so I think it would be helpful to have someone appointed that really knows the, the issues because they know them well on the German side because it's they've been doing it for, for, for years. Uh, and then have those discussions lead towards some kind of accommodation of the type I've been describing. But in the meantime, I think you'll probably see at least one pipe lay finished. And then a whole bunch of rather dull regulatory stuff um, about when and how the pipeline could be certified and then commissioned. I should note, by the way, that the, the big, the last big thing remaining in the sanctions, U.S. sanctions that I haven't mentioned is uh, that these technical certification companies are saying part of the sanctions. So, and that's not, there's not 50 companies around the world doing this. You know, this is the, the business that DNV uh, is in, companies like that. Um, and so nobody really knows if that's going to be, if there's a if there's a, an end run available around that, or if that's going to actually prevent technical certification, which will prevent insurance of the pipeline, which will prevent it from, from operating. So that's another thing to throw into the mix there. So I think pipeline complete, a bunch of complicated, relatively boring stuff about whether we'll be able to start up and begin operations, and that's not going to happen soon. So are we expecting some form of resolution, at least on the pipeline piece, uh, this calendar year and or before the uh, I, 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 I hesitate to make predictions, but but I think that that um, I think that probably pipe lay. I, I don't. It's not out of the question. Um, but I, I guess I see pipe lay for, for as being completed, and then without an explicit moratorium, uh, just for other reasons, these sort of uh, regulatory reasons, the pipeline not starting up until there's some sort of agreement has been reached. That's not going to be so easy. I'm very hesitant to predict <laughs> that this will all be resolved and everyone will have moved on by by the end of this calendar year. Um, but that's certainly one you know one scenario. And then I think. Once the pipeline begins operating, particularly if if sort of the guarantees of transit through Ukraine at a certain level uh, have been sort of uh, confirmed and strengthened and, and all of that, then I think 
people in a few years looking just at the gas market could be thinking, why were we so concerned about this? Because in fact, everything's, you know, more or less the same as it was before. Same as it ever was. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. This has been uh, a fascinating conversation from from my end, and I'm uh, I'm hopeful everyone else who who is listening enjoys it. And and let's come back. Uh, I'd love to uh, continue conversations on, well, maybe continue conversations on this, depending on where things go. I hope not. I hope not. I'm so so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. Carbon carbon order adjustment tax. That's the the next exciting issue in, in Europe. All right. Well, there, there's plenty to talk about it in, in, in terms of European energies. So uh, look forward to your coming back and uh, we'll talk again then. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Hill. Real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.